Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello and welcome back to Beyond Farpoint, a podcast about Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm Jeff Owen, and here, back from his journeys through Middle-earth and 1916 St. Petersburg, it's my good friend Baz Greenland. <laughs> it's amazing how much further you can travel with the driving licence, isn't it? How are you doing today, Baz? It is. Not, not quite that far. I, I'm good, thanks. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, since we last did our podcast, we've, we've had a little bit of a hiatus, um... Yeah, I, I, I've passed my driving test, so I've not driven as far as St. Petersburg. Congratulations. I don't think I want to go there at the moment anyway, but thank you. But um, yeah, I've done, I've done I've been a lot of driving around the Cardiff area, certainly. Um, and yeah, I've, um, one of the reasons I kind of decided to take a break was because I have some other podcasts to do. So I've been busy podcasting on The Rings of Power, on my Lord of the Rings podcast, One Rules Them All. Um, and the Dot Two podcast, so the uh, the power of the Doctor as well. So there's been lots of other podcasts going on, and book writing, and new job as well, and and driving. So it's been a busy couple of months for me. I can tell. Yeah, every so often I'll see something pop up on your Facebook, and it's like, oh my god, what else is he doing? <laughs> so no wonder you needed to take a couple of months off. Yeah, but it's good. <laughs> it's good be here to be talking Star Trek again. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't really say that because I've had a chance myself over the last couple of months to talk Lower Decks over on the Rarely Going podcast. Um, and by the time this episode comes out, I think there'll be a Prodigy, ep- um, uh, sorry, a, a We Are Starfleet episode come out where I'll be talking about an episode of Prodigy. Uh, that will be future me, though, um, but you'll have already heard it by the time that this episode is released. To, to, to quote my Dot Two podcast, the TARDIS crew, it's very timey wimey. Wibbly wobbly. Anyway, as for today's episode, if we've worked out our maths correctly and we've done proper planning and whatever, then the day this episode is released should be the 20th anniversary of one of the best Star Trek movies of all time. Oh no, hang on, it's the 20th anniversary of Star Trek Nemesis. So... We thought we'd yes. return no, we, from we, our we did, we did, we did, We've already done the 25th anniversary of First Contact already, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that is the, our favourite Star Trek movie. But um, we thought we'd take a look at probably the most divisive of the Star Trek movies. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It, it's one that I, um, I, I saw again about three years ago for the first time, probably much since it came out. And I've never hated Nemesis, but it, it has got a lot of hate. And I don't think it's the weakest Star Trek movie. I think I would probably put Final Frontier um, into darkness below it. But it is one of the weaker ones. And there there are issues with the movie, which we'll get on to. But partly it's the Next Generation crew, which is always great to watch. And yep. um, there are moments in the movie, but I was like, I'm really, really enjoying this. So it, it it's an okay star trek movie but there's some there's some there's some good there's some good stuff in there um it certainly has a very good strong start as well yeah well that's something i want to get into as well as we go on um it's a shame really that the box office returns of this film meant that they didn't go ahead with a follow-up to this because there was talk about doing another star trek the next generation movie which i believe was meant to have been some big 
crossover a crossover event which had characters from DS9 and Voyager in it. Um, because obviously by the time this film had come out, um, Enterprise was into a second season, I want to say. Yeah, it was... Um... It was, it was already in the... I think this era of Star Trek was already in its death throes, wasn't it? I mean, it's a shame because actually season three and four of Enterprise are much stronger. There's, there's some, actually some really good Star Trek in there. And, and it kind of, with its last breath, delivered some really good stuff. These are the voices aside of which we've already talked about in our crossover episode. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah but, there was, but it was... I mean, Star Trek had been going for age at this point. I mean, this is, what, this is 2002. So it's been going since 87, the next generation era of Star Trek. There have been so many episodes, so many stories to be told, and Enterprise, particularly, you know, that second season of Enterprise is basically a rehash of a lot of old Star Trek episodes already, mm. um, and then before yeah. it kind of um, went in its own direction. But um, yeah, it's a shame. I think Star Trek was dying, but it was such a legacy, you know. I mean, Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise all had some great stuff. We had some great movies, you know, First Contact, particularly, and it's a real shame that we didn't get that final movie as a kind of swan song not just for the next generation but for the era as a whole i mean obviously this film has a janeway cameo but you know i would love to have seen deep space nine on the big screen and, and voyager and, and the crew and that and uh just to kind of because because that's it we call it the next generation era and so next generation is kind of like the, the heart of the show you know the heart of this era of star mm. trek but it, it does encompass all those shows, even Enterprise. I'm not sure how, you know, maybe with some time trial, they could have got some Enterprise crew in there as well. I don't know. But it's it's a big, all-encompassing era of four different shows. So that's, what, 25 seasons of television and four films. That's a, that's a big, big legacy. And it's a real shame that we didn't get a chance to wrap it up properly by while also bringing um, shows like DS9 and Voyage to the big screen as well. Yeah, that's it. I mean, he said uh, Janeway has a cameo in this film. Uh, there was also talk, apparently, for Seven of Nine to have been it and been in it at one point as well. Uh, but there was some sort of um, conflict with Jerry Ryan uh, and her schedule, I believe. So uh, they they brought on board Kate Mulgrew as as um, Admiral Janeway, which I think is a better option, in all honesty. Uh, I'm glad we saw Janeway. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. It's a nice little bit of um, kind of continuity of what happens after Voyager as well. I, I, I you know, I, I like Janeway the character uh, for the most part. She, she can be very up and down in Voyager, but the, when she's good, she's good. And I, I really like seeing uh, Janeway in the movie. It was a nice bit of continuity. She obviously got to Admiral before Picard, which feels wrong. But at the same time, it was a nice little bit of kind of continuity, a nice little bit of cameo there as well, and a bit of kind of well-building. The stuff that we should have had with that final crossover movie. Shall we get into it then? Let's Shall go we dive in? Our eyes reflect our lives, don't they? I can see as well as you can. I can feel everything you feel. In fact, I can feel exactly what you feel. said he's a mirror for me. I need to know where the hell he came from. The same blood runs through our veins. It was as if part of me had been stolen. I can feel your hunger. 
must deactivate you. Why? Because you are dangerous. Look in the mirror. See yourself. I'm a mirror for you as well. Don't be so vain. for Earth. Kill everything. Star Trek Nemesis, uh, screenplay by John Logan, uh, story by John Logan and Rick Berman and Brent Spiner. Directed by Stuart Baird. We will have plenty to say on Mr. Baird as the talk goes on, I'm sure. Definitely. And it was released on the 13th of December 2002. Let's start with a positive. This opening sequence is probably the best opening of any Star Trek movie. The opening sequence, uh, the opening scene in the Romulus Imperial Senate. What do you think of the opening sequence of this film? Oh, it's a great scene. You've got Alan Dowell as a Romulan. Alan Dowell or anything is always great anyway. <laughs> I, I forgot. I completely forgotten that he was in this. Um, and I know he didn't technically die of a heart attack like he does in every other show he's in, but I'm assuming he had a heart attack when he died with the virus. Um, uh, but you know, it, it was it's great. I mean, I love that kind of um, gorgeous sweeping shot into Romulus and the Imperial Senate. It's grand. It's big. It's great to see the Romulans. And then you've got this kind of real nasty death sequence as well. It's... um. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a big uh, chance to finally see Romulus on the big screen as well, and that's what's great about it is that the Romulans they are. I'm 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 really glad that the Romulans featured in the final Next Generation movie because the Romulans were kind of outside of the Borg, who are slightly different anyway, and, they, and they've all done the Borg. The Romulans are the big bads. We always talk about the Romulan episodes on Beyond Farpoint as some of our favourites, and there's some great stuff there. So while we're talking this opportunity, I'm sure Celia will, will pop up at some point on our, on our discussions. But um, it was as is compulsory. Great. Yeah, it is. But it was great to have the Romulans get their fi- get their get their big screen focus. You know, they were, they were denied it after Star Trek Three when they decided to shift the focus mm-hmm. to the Cleons. Um, it was originally going to be the Romulans. And I think that works because the Kirk Kirk's baddies were the, the Cleons. They were more TOS episodes than the Romulans anyway. And it's yeah. like the Klingons are the, ba- the bad guys of the Kirk era. The Romulans are really the bad guys of the Picard era. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm glad that Picard followed that through into its first season as well. But uh, it's it was great to see the see Romulus on the big screen. Really great opening shot. Really great sequence. Um, it doesn't really then follow that level afterwards. But yeah, it's a, it's a great opening. I remember seeing this actually when I went uh, to see it in the cinema, and that opening sequence, I thought, oh, here we go. We're going to be in for a thrill ride of a movie. Um, and it doesn't quite get to those levels. But knowing what happens next to the Romulan, with the Romulan Empire and the events of Star Trek 2009 and Star Trek Picard, with the Senate being destroyed as much as Shinzon does to it in this film, I think this is the start of their downfall. Is oh, absolutely. Is that too obvious a statement? 
No, I, I, I think you're right. I think, I think, obviously, there's this big. I mean, there's talk of other power plays that happened previously as well as part of the uh, whole mm. plot surrounding Shinzon as well. But yeah, I think, I think. I mean, ultimately, the Romulans' downfall happened the moment they joined the Dominion War, and and I do like how the movie continually references the war, without let's mm. say the Dominion War, because people outside DSI might actually know about it. But the war is very much uh, kind of an important part of the history. Shinzon fought in the war, for example, and um, yeah, I think the moment the Romulans joined the war against the Dominion. Um, it was the right thing to do, and they probably would have been crushed anyway. But it did kind of weaken they kind of they 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 lost maybe some of that power, and obviously like all like the Federation, like the Klingons, suffered some heavy losses as well, probably in the war as well. So there was a bit of a weakening there. But yeah, this is probably the next big thing. Um, with the Senate crushed, you know, it probably leaves a power vacuum, and that and a, and a vacuum that basically probably isn't filled properly by the time the events of the well, the kind of the future stuff of the 2009 prequel, sequel, reboot movie happened. So, yeah, I, I think that they are they are weakened by the war. They're weakened by the bit of Shinzon, and then obviously the supernova. That's it. They kind of they kind of crushed that point. So, um, obviously, we saw, particularly in the Picard season one, that they are they aren't completely destroyed. They, they still have a big fleet as well, and they're they're spies in Starfleet and so on. But yeah, it's definitely. Um, I think this is this is a turning point for the Romulan Empire. In, in the overall Star Trek storyline. So we go from the uh, that spectacular opening sequence to the wedding. I've got to say, this, this scene is particularly lovely. And I know we spoke about Wesley a couple of episodes ago. Let's mm. talk about him briefly again. Were you glad to see him? And Guinan, for that matter. It was good to see Guinan, I thought. Yeah, I mean, actually, I completely forgot about the Guinan moment with Geordie, about the... Um... 23 husbands she's had so that, that was great um <laughs> i can i i i always thought is this a deleted scene i completely i completely mind blanked about that that she was i knew she was in it like wesley but i assumed she was a non-speaking role so i really appreciate seeing garden and i really liked her discussion with geordie and wharf but it was it, i'm glad that wesley was there because he is part mm. of the core tng uh family yeah, and it and it doesn't it doesn't take away from his departure in Journey's End. It doesn't really take away his um, the reveal that we talked about in the Wesley episode a few uh, a while ago in the summer about what happens him becoming a traveler um, in Star Trek Picard as well. He, he just pops up for you know people re, people don't see each other for years and they pop up for a family wedding you know or a, a, a wedding of friends you know long term friends that's what he does. He, he pops in. He's probably a traveler at this point. Pops in for the wedding and then leaves again. Um, so. I would have liked to have had some more Wesley scenes. I'm glad, I know we talked about this in this episode, that they didn't go, oh, now he's rejoined Starfleet, because actually I think that takes away from his the story arc he had in The Next Generation. Mm. But um, I would like to have seen him have a couple of lines in the movie. But it's nice that he's there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a deleted scene which does show him has, um, as having returned to Starfleet. And in one uh, in this particular instance, I think the long term continuity benefits from that deleted scene staying out of the continuity of the of the story. Yeah. Um, and ironically, Beta Cannon, uh, I think we spoke about this on the Wesley episode. Actually, there is one of the novels um, where they talk about Wesley returning for this wedding, thinking it was a Betazoid wedding, turning up stark naked. 
and someone lending him a dress uniform for the purpose of the event, um, which obviously makes perfect sense um, in the longer scheme of it, particularly with what we now know about what his life led on to. Um, So, yeah, I do like that. Yeah, Um, without going too much in... Yeah, without going too much into it as well, I th- I think um, the fact he's wearing a uniform doesn't really mean anything. You know, former military officers mm. will wear a uniform to kind of pr- events, so it's like he's a former Starfleet officer who wears a un- dress uniform for the wedding. That's fine. It doesn't doesn't you're, mean any more than that. You're absolutely right because look, I mean, in recent history for us, we've just seen um, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, and we saw a number of noted royals, former. Um, former military themselves decked out in full military regalia. So, yeah, that's completely understandable. We're then introduced to possibly one of my favourite bits of the film as we get the Argo as it recovers B4's head, escapes back to the shuttle as it runs from the Tuscan Raiders. Uh, Sorry, Kalaran Rebels. As a motorsport (laughs) fan, as a motorsport fan, I love the Argo and made me wonder what motorsport in Star Trek would have been like. I know it's not your thing, but can you imagine something like that? We've seen Starship races, but can you see something like that taking place? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's out there, because actually, I mean, I mean, Lower Decks is obviously a right place to explore. I mean, I love that they had the June buggy in a, in a Lower Decks episode in Season 2, which was fantastic. Um, mm. But it's, um, I'm, I'm sure it's out there. I mean, I'm sure that they have Starship races. I'm sure they have June buggy races. It's a big universe, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it'll be, it'll be there as well. I found the whole sequence a little bit... I liked it, but it was a little bit odd at the same time. It's kind of it goes very Mad Max with the with the uh, uh, not yeah. Tuscan Raiders, Raiders, and um, it was a fun sequence. I kind of pick up. There's a, it's almost a, a weird plot thread running throughout the film of Picard's getting to be a bit overzealous and he gets to drive. He gets to drive a buggy, then he gets to drive one of those kind of uh, Riemann fighters later on. And I kind of I didn't really feel in character. I know he relaxed a bit more in the movies, but I kind of. Um, didn't really feel true to his character, maybe, but um, mm. or maybe maybe telling me, you know, I mean, there's obviously I had a bit more fun, but uh, his kind of zeal was a more of a kind of Kirk thing than a Picard thing for me. But uh, it's a, it's an interesting sequence, but um, it just kind of felt, I mean, in one sense, it felt it felt totally different for a Star Trek movie, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, if I'm thinking of anything close to it, it's probably Final Frontier, which is not necessarily a great comparison. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny you should say actually about Picard, movie Picard feeling different because a lot of people have levelled that at movie Kirk as well because, mm. you know, a, a series Kirk was this sort of gung-ho action star and he's more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He's more, not sedate, but he's more... Um, well, he's older and a bit more wiser. Yeah. yeah. I, I love movie Picard though. I think, because I like movie Kirk, I think... I, I love the narrative of Kirk over those movies. I think it's great. And um, mm. going back recently and watching some of the original series as well, I like how it progresses to an old, more mature Kirk. Um, I think Picard just becomes... Because Kirk was more of an action hero, I think they, the idea of making Picard an action hero, it worked for First Contact because of his um, hatred and vengeance against the Borg. In stuff like this, I, I kind of felt it was a little bit more out of character for him there. 
Yeah, it's it's funny actually because you've just reminded me. Um, they often used to say about the Kirk that went through the academy that he was. I think they called him a library on legs or a, yeah. a stack of books on legs. Um, and Picard's academy history was very much as this sort of hot-headed young guy who was uh, after all the women and everything. And it's strange that Kirk really went from this sort of level-headed person to this action hero back to this more level-headed person. And in Picard's timeline, he's gone gung-ho um, young officer to one of the best diplomats in Starfleet's history to be in more gung-ho again by the mm. time of the movies. Um, and, then, and obviously went further on with Picard. Yeah, but. it is a weird one. I, I mean, I, I never the idea of, um, I think it's a line, it's, it's the um, where no man has gone before with um, uh, his, his best friend in right back at the beginning of the original series. I think it's, it's, it's the Kirk pilot. Mitchell. Yeah, the Kirk pilot where they we actually talk about him being very bookish. And mm. that always feels weirdly out of character for Kirk. That line doesn't really fit with yeah. the Kirk that we know. Whereas... I think you've seen things like the brilliant tapestry in episode we've discussed before in our Q episode. You know, you, you've seen the impulsive Kirk of his youth. And I like that. And maybe this is kind of him going back. And the same way that maybe Kirk becomes a bit more wiser as he may be in the Academy. Um, I think this is maybe him regaining a little bit of that. I think the scene later on with the women fighter and that kind of zeal kind of maybe him tapping him to his, his kind of forgotten youth because he has a literal reflection of that in Shinzon. But that might work later on in the movie. At this point, mm. it's, it's, it's before we even got to Shinzon. So it kind of, um, I don't know. It's uh, there, there were a few things in this movie where I kind of thought Picard's motivations didn't quite work for me. And I don't know if that was the direction because I know uh, Logan, the screenwriter, was a deeply passionate Star Trek The Next Generation fan. And you see yeah. it a lot of moments. There are so many moments mm. in this movie. I'm going back to the wedding sequence as well. There are some really lovely character moments in this movie. But Stuart Baird seems to go, well, and cut, move on, cut, move on. And like, I thought, oh, there's a really nice scene here with Picard and Crusher. And then cut it. And there was a scene here with Picard and, and Data. Cut it. And it goes straight into a next action sequence. And I kind of mm. felt like... I wanted those. I wanted to see more of the character stuff, and what I got was yeah. stuff that was maybe a little less interesting. Yeah, I um, I sent you a couple of clips over on YouTube the other day. There was about twenty minutes worth of deleted scenes, and I think some of those scenes could have done well to have gone in mm. because they're more character based. Um, but yeah, you can imagine uh, Stuart Baird has just gone in and gone. Yeah, that's slowing the film down. That's slowing the film down. Mm. Um, and he's just left them on the cho uh, you know the cutting room floor, which is a real shame. Yeah, it it really is. I I mean he didn't get Star Trek. He thought Geordie was an alien. Kept calling him Laverne as yeah. well. Apparently, I mean there's yeah we'll probably get more into him as we go to film. But yeah, he obviously didn't get it. And I thought and that and, and that kind of shows in that direction and the edit of the movie because I like when I thought oh there was a, so there was a scene where later on when Crusher comes to Picard's ready room. And it was so reminded me of the moments they shared in The Next Generation. And it was a really lovely talk about his past. And then like before I knew it, the scene was over. I'm like, I wanted more of that. Can I have more of that, yeah. please? I don't really care about the Riemanns or the Shins on and his motivations and stuff. But I wanted more of that stuff. And it wasn't there. And um, I just feel like there's a... I get the feeling that L Logan's script is much more 
the kind of movie that we wanted to see. Tiggers Brent Spiner was involved in it as well. And also Rick Berman, who had shepherded most of the era as well. Um, so I kind of feel like there, there's a, there was a great movie in Nemesis. There are moments in this movie which feel like, yes, it feels like the true swan song. The fact that we've got Troy and Riker getting married and then moving on to the Titan. And I think, isn't there a deleted scene with Crusher going back to Starfleet Medical again? So she's going to leave as well. Um, and then obviously Data dies in this movie. And it really does feel like if there are moments in this movie that feel like this is almost trying to go for that undiscovered country mentality of this is the final next generation movie it kind of feels to me like as much as i would like that crossover movie this movie does sort of work in some ways as a swan song for the next generation era because this is the, mm. this is the crew breaking up i know warf has gone and he's randomly in this movie I know, well he's not randomly because he's there for the um wedding he's more randomly in the movie in insurrection just turns up in the in the in the, in the uh, <laughs> given it's in the middle in the middle of the dominion war and we'll get onto that when we talk about insurrection um at a future date but uh i just feel like there were it does feel like this is the end of the era of the next generation crew as we know it and from there are many departures either physical through death or through moving, getting married and moving to their own ship or going back to earth then the the enterprise e is never the same after this movie and no. and that feels to me like it's a swan song to the next generation. It just gets swallowed up in all the some of the choices that don't really work for me. Another thing as well about an unusual directing decision is this photograph of the young Picard that we see, mm. Cadet Picard, we see. And it's like, oh, this is obviously Cadet Picard because, look, he's got a bald head. No, we know Cadet Picard had a full head of hair. Yeah, yeah. continuity-wise, so it's... it's rubbish. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's one of those films where you don't want the director's cut, you want the writer's cut. Yes, yes. Such a thing can happen. Um, you want John Logan to go back through this film and say, no, I want this to be the movie and release it in his um, vision and not Stuart Baird's. Uh, because I, I think the last thing we want of this film is any sort of further cut with Stuart Baird involved. No, absolutely not, yeah. And that's it. And I, and I suspect, I haven't read it, but I suspect Logan's script has some really great stuff that we'll never see. We never saw. Either it was filmed yeah. and cut or never filmed at all. Yeah. I mean, uh, John Logan, um, I did look him up. He's responsible for quite a number of big-name movies as well, isn't he? He... he... He is, um, and you're going to remind me because I've uh, I've suddenly forgotten his entire film repertoire. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same for me. Um... Let's, let's, let's consult the the holy IMDb app, and we will find out what he's worked on. So, Skyfall. Oh, obviously, yes. I you know I, I knew it as soon as I saw it. Yes, it's Skyfall. So yeah, he's written on as uh, that was after. Presumably. He was yeah. So. I mean, he's done it. He, he he wrote Alien Covenant, which is okay. He created Page Red for the series, which was great. Uh, he's done he's done Skyfall and Spectre. Um, I like Spectre. I people people be up up and down. Hugo, which won won awards. Um, Gladiator. Yeah, um, the Sweeney Todd movie as well, which is quite good. Um, Last Samurai. Um, yeah, I said Gladiator. Yeah, it actually has some good stuff. He's some yeah, some good movies there in 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 that range. Um, some great movies, in fact. And uh, yeah, yeah, I it, which makes me you know when I look at look at his IMDb listing now, I'm thinking yeah, I want I want that writer's cut of Nemesis. Mm, yeah, just basically to see what it could have been, particularly as as you know as you said, 
we know that he was a big Star Trek fan and he wanted to show his appreciation, his affection mm. for uh, the franchise that he was working for. So, yeah, it's it's a shame, but um, th- th- this is a request, really. Can we get either a writer's cut or just, you know, release the script so we can read it? Yeah. We'd love to read the script of it. Or, um, I don't know if one came out, but a novelization of the script, or even a graphic novel, or... <laughs> I, I'm... IDW, if you're listening, graphic novel of the original Nemesis script, please. I'm sure that would be popular. Yes. I, I'm popping seed away about it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do it. Uh, I just want to g- go back to something actually about the Argo before we get mm. completely off that section. Um, because this one, as I was looking at the information about it, the Argo was designed and built by the Pro Truck Racing Organization, so it was actually racing pedigree. Founded by road racing champion Ivan Ironman Stewart. Now, I don't know if you know this, Baz. Uh, well, I know that you know another of my passions is retro gaming yeah. and old systems, and I quite like the old Sinclair Spectrum. There was a game that came out on the Spectrum called Ivan Ironman Stewart Super Off-Road. So I've got an actual connection here between Star Trek and the Sinclair Spectrum. So I'll take your word for it. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm, I was actually quite pleased to see his name attached to it, even uh, because uh, Super Off Road is one of my favourite games on the Spectrum. Anyway, sorry, completely off topic. Admiral Janeway. It's a lovely scene. It's a really lovely scene. Um, yeah. Because it could have been anyone. It could have been any of the random Starfleet admirals um, sending him to Romulus for his diplomatic mission. And I think it's a really nice touch to have Jeremy. I, do, I don't know where Seven of Nine um, would have come into the movie. I mean, now, I've heard some of the rumours, actually. There were some possible contract issues with Marina Sirtis. And actually, they were thinking of replacing Troy with Seven of Nine. Which is just random, Ooh. which is really random. I'm not sure if they, how much truth there is to that. Because actually, Troy does get something to do in this movie, uh, which is interesting. Um, As opposed to Dr. Crusher. Yeah. who uh, there, There's one scene Crusher I really liked, and I wanted more of that, but as a character moment anyway. Yeah. But yeah, Troy gets something to do in this movie. So I think without... I mean, particularly between the wedding and obviously there's the disturbing mind rape stuff that goes on which we'll talk about but also when she fights back at the end as well does that mind attack thing there's there's some interesting Troy stuff in this movie the most interesting stuff she's had to do probably in all the movies um, I mean yeah she kind of crashes the Enterprise but it's on purpose this time so it's, it's, it's allowed uh, but um, yeah it's I don't see how this movie works without Troy so I don't know where Seven Nine comes in if she was supposed to be a replacement for for Troy or not but I certainly can't see her as um, a replacement for Janeway in this scene I mean maybe no. it's a case they wanted to serve a nine because she was the most popular character on Voyager and um, I think Voyager was more popular than DS9 DS9 was a black sheep DS9 is now reappraised now and now of course everyone loves it like we did but um, I think it, it I imagine this was probably more a standard Admiral scene like the one we had at the beginning of First Contact uh, when he's ordered to the uh, Romulan neutral zone then. Um, so actually, the opportunity to make it a Janeway scene works really well, and it's a lovely bit of kind mm. of continuity, I just, uh, um, because obviously there's stuff in Prodigy now with Janeway and Chakotay, and obviously we've had seven storyline continuing in Picard, but we don't really know enough about them, even less about DS9, apart from the recent the recent wonderful trip to DS9 in Lower Decks, which I loved as well. Mm. Uh, but... Um, 
yeah, I think it's just it's just it's a it's a it's a bog standard. Admiral sends him on a mission, but the fact that it's Janeway is just a really nice touch. Yeah, exactly. And I think when uh, you had the Admiral in the first season of Star Trek Picard, and when people were complaining about it not being Janeway, I was kind of thinking, yeah, but do you want that character who obviously acts like a complete dick to Picard for obvious reasons, Mm. for perfectly correct reasons? Do you want the person being a dick to Picard to be Janeway? I think we we talked about this when we we did our season one yeah. look back. I would have kind of been okay with that because I think Janeway could be a little not she wasn't quite that bad, but she she had her Janeway moments. You know, the Janeway podcast on Hollywood Media as well. You know, they have the right way, the wrong way, or the Janeway, and, the, and that's the reason for that because Janeway has her own special way of doing things. And um, I. I can kind of see Janeway in that role. So I would have been okay with it. It would have been interesting because it would have tarnished some of the love for Janeway because she she basically mm. becomes a bit of an antagonist. I think it would have been a really clever move, a bit of storytelling, but I see why he didn't do it, but I would have been fine with it. But here's a bit more of just a general nice, oh, and congratulations on the promotion thing from Picard, which was nice as well. Mm. Yeah, and... The other thing as well, thinking about it, I can't imagine the words sheer fucking hubris coming out of Kate Mulgrew's mouth, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Possibly. I don't know. I, th- I think she could put it off, but um, I, I don't say um, it would maybe have worked as well for a character either. <laughs> yeah, very true. Okay, so, I mean, we get introduced to the Remans in this mm. movie. Now, we've heard a lot about Remus since way back in Balance of Terror, because we see it on the map, yeah. except it's Romai, or R-O-M-I-I, but then it gets retrospectively renamed Remus later on. It makes it makes absolute sense. Romulus and Remus are the, you know... Yeah, they were the based on the Roman Empire, of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, wolves of Roman law. Um, but it's the first time we see the Remans, and we're told that they used the shock troops in some of the more violent encounters of the Dominion War, mm. cannon fodder, mm. What do you think of them when you first saw them? I would have quite liked to have seen the Dominion War stuff with, with the Remans. Obviously, it's a retroactive now. I think the idea of Riemann shock troops would have been Riemanns and Klingons fighting together in the Dominion War against Jemadar. That yeah. sounds amazing. Yeah, it's um, they, they are good. What remind what, what my thought that came into my head though, because this came out in two thousand and two. So this was a. This was, in fact, it came out around the same time as the Two Towers. So Lord of the Rings movies were were big business at the time. Everyone loved them, and it kind of like, oh, the orcs in Lord of the Rings are really cool. Let's make the Reemlers like orcs. They they kind of look a little bit like, like orcs. They look a bit like the orcs from Lord of the Rings. And um, yeah, I just think they 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 do work. And I quite like Ron Perlman's character in it as well. Um, doesn't get a massive amount, so he's probably more interested than Shinzon to be honest. But um, <laughs> yeah, but um. They they do work. They're quite cool. I I like the idea of them as shock troops, and as a kind of second class race. There's some again some really interesting ideas. But the thing that strikes me maybe Snuggle goes oh everyone like the orcs in Lord of the Rings. Let's make them like them, and let's have let's have Lord of the Rings in space a little bit with this. And I, I don't know that's kind of, that was kind of my that's always been my thought. But maybe it's because it came out at the same time as the Two Towers, and maybe maybe I'm retroactively trying to kind of assume there was some kind of capitalising on the Lord of the Rings success with this movie. I don't, I don't know. 
I didn't even think of the Lord of the Rings aspect of it, to be honest. And um, I did make a note later on in my notes uh, about the fact that this film came out, I think it was about a week or two weeks before The Two Towers. And because The Two Towers just did as well as it Mm. did, Star Trek Nemesis' performance in the box office fell to seventh place. It had dropped off significantly after his first week in the box office. Yeah, and I think you know, like yeah. Harry Potter movies were at the same time as well. I think, I think, yeah, I think there was there's a lot of movies at the same time. I, I think it just um, it suffered from its placement. It shouldn't have been a Christmas movie, which is coming out in December, which, which it would have been. Yeah. Incidentally, do you know, uh, because Nemesis was not the first film to debut in uh, at number one, the first Star Trek film not to debut at number one, do you know what was? The first Star Trek movie? Uh, no, sorry. This was the first movie that didn't debut at number one in the box office. Ah, okay. So what do you think was number one instead that week? Back in 2002, this is before yeah. Two Towers... I'm trying. If you if you can guess this, I will be amazed because I had to look this up because I'd forgotten oh, about this movie completely. This is back in back in my uni days. I would have gone to the movies a lot at this point. I I what's that? Matrix was it Matrix Revolutions or was that later? No, it's nothing genre related okay. at all, which is going to make it even trickier <laughs> for us. Yeah, I I don't know. I've probably seen it, but no, I don't, I can't think. Okay, it is the Jennifer Lopez romantic comedy made in Manhattan. Okay, well, I, that's why I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this film lost out to Made in Manhattan yeah. uh, in the opening weekend. I mean, in fairness, particularly around that time, Jennifer Lopez was doing a lot of movies as well, and um, between that and her, and her seeing career was big business as well. So yeah. I can see the appeal to number of audiences for a big Jennifer Lopez rom-com and why that might get number mm-hmm. one. Particularly it's coming out before things like Two Towers, which is a big juggernaut of a movie itself. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's you wouldn't think they would. But at the same time, I'm always surprised. If you said that a lot of the movies debut at number one, I'm always surprised when Star Trek movies did debut at number one because as much as there are many Star Trek fans out there, they are... They have a, there's a certain sense of you know where you you've got to really got to be a trekkie to really appreciate 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 the movies as well. I know they try and make them more accessible, what they did with the uh, reboot movies, but I I always felt that uh, it'd be more the fans going to see Star Trek movies than more general audiences. Mm, yeah, Star Trek films generally have a sort of sort of expected audience, mm. and it's very tricky for someone who's not a Star Trek fan to go in i think that's what star trek 2009 did very well because they basically said look you don't need to know anything about star trek history Mm. we're rebooting it yeah and and nemesis is a movie steeped in law as well uh not not data's half brother and that's before in this movie but you know the it's got it's got the history with the uh romulans and it's and that kind of seeds through into um, from the series into this movie. You've got Mentions to the War, which is DS9. You've got uh, Riker and Troy, the kind of culmination of that war they want, they romance, it's built up and then reunited, reignited in this direction. They get married here. You know, There's Jay- Janeway's cameo, which is basically the culmination of a return home from Voyager. There's, there's lots of stuff in this movie that feel like it's... If you don't understand Star Trek lore... You may not be able. It may not be as accessible, and and that's very Logan, mm. who wrote the movie, was a Star Trek fan. You and that the moment you can tell in this movie 
that he was a fan because it feels like this this was this this is a movie that is made for the love of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think um, with what they call Star Trek fandom burnout happening at the time, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, I I think that's that's why that's why Enterprise ended because the fans the fans had seen these stories again and again and again, and they weren't being told that particularly interesting. You know, obviously, Mm. season three and four picked up speed again, but it was it was too late. And um, yeah, yeah, I think. uh, it's interesting. Two movies earlier, First Contact was around what Voyager season three, where it was getting big, just about to introduce Seven or Nine. Star Trek: Deep Space Nine exploded with the Dominion War. We had First Contact. You know, five years earlier, Star Trek was at its peak, and in, in that following five years, from First Contact through to Nemesis, it just kind of snowballed out into kind of oblivion, really, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it, it's a real shame because, you know, they, they could have really uh, ridden that success for, uh, for a while if, if they'd had that sort of fresh injection of talent because Manny Koto came in towards the end of Enterprise mm. and really gave that series a kick up the arse. Um, but as, as you said, it was already too late. Yeah. People had already started turning it off. Yeah, given and... that, I think given that Voyager had ended as well and Enterprise was never mm. as popular... They should have made this the crossover movie. DS9 had only been off the air, what, two or three years at this point as well. So it would have been a good opportunity to uh, do that crossover movie. They waited, they yeah. waited too late, I think, to do that. Got to say as well, we're, we're not crapping on Enterprise. No, no. We do really like mm. Enterprise. We just think it was sort of badly treated uh, at the time. And it really deserved this full seven-year run. And if um, if after Star Trek Picard they said that the next season, uh, next series of Star Trek was going to be Star Trek Enterprise Season 5, I'd be all over Oh, it. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Um, now, over the years we've seen Brent Spiner play many members of the songs and technological families, but uh, he's playing B4 here, which is a different sort of song-type android to the ones we've seen before. Huh. Um what did you think of his performance as B4? It's a little bit creepy, I think. <laughs> and I think maybe intentionally. Yeah. It's that weird naivety. Very emotional, which is interesting. Mm. But just a little bit weird. I kind of... Um, I do think they were trying to go for for, for some humour that doesn't quite land as well. With the movie. There, are, there are moments when I think you, expect, you always expect the audience to laugh at B4's reactions to stuff. And I didn't laugh, and um, I'm not sure it kind of... It's quite uncomfortable as well. It is. And in some ways that works really well, because he's more of a basic prototype of B4. Um, Mm. I think it probably should have been... Maybe they could have done something with with Law to kind of go for... So I'm really interested that Law's coming back in Picard Season 3. and uh, But at the same time, I don't know. It kind of... The trouble with B4 in this movie is that the... The bait, which is Shinzon, sticks B4 on his planet in the Romulan border to kind of entice the crew of the Enterprise, almost feels a bit too obvious. Oh, there's a random new data assumed android right on the Romulan border, just as you're ordered, and then just after that, you're ordered to the Romulan homeworld because of a, of a coup that's happened. It's like, really? It kind of feels like, and then the Picard immediately goes, oh, let's, let's plug B4 into the ship's computers and transfer all the data's memories. And you're thinking, what? This sounds. Your, your actions sound ridiculous. You know, you, mm. it's a security risk. 
and it makes Picard look stupid. So when B4 hacks stuff, you go, oh, look, well, what, what's, what the hell is Picard doing this movie? He's, he's off riding June buggies and then letting B4 hack the uh, Starfleet data. I do like how they kind of turn it around, actually, and, and um, Data and Picard are kind of in on the plan a bit later on. Um, doesn't maybe land quite as well as you should have done. But I, I find B4 an interesting idea, but I kind of think, don't think at the same time he brought anything really new to the uh, Sung legacy. No, I know what you mean. And... Also, by having B4 at the end, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that Picard didn't have him around as B4 around. He obviously realised he was too basic to, and indeed decommissioned him. You find that out in the Data Instrument in Picard Season 1. And I think that works because this is about Data's last sacrifice, which is a bit underplayed. I think there should be more to it. But it's like having a cake and eat it. Okay, we're going to kill off Data, but we've got B4 and we've transferred all of Data's memories into B4. So what you're saying is we've killed Data. So if if Brent, not really. yeah, so we have we have we haven't really killed them all. The fact that the final scene of the movie is Picard talking to B4, who's been activated, and you're thinking, what was the point? It's like having a uh, when Spock dies, and then um, Spock's half brother. Let's have Sibok turns up at the end of the movie, and oh, he's going to replace Spock. It's kind of like it just it doesn't it doesn't really work. I I kind of I don't I kind of felt the whole bait for them to get the information on the Starfleet ship movements to launch an invasion of the Federation could have been done in a much more interesting way. I think B4 was a mistake in this movie. Yeah, and given by the fact that there's a story credit from Brent Spiner on this movie, you just know that he came up with the whole B4 side of it. Mm. Even the name sounds a bit trite. Yeah. Apparently it was going to be B9. Which works a bit better, to be honest. It, it kind of um, and I, sounds better. And I did, Yeah, I did see something about why they didn't go with B9. And they, they stuck with the sort of play on words thing. And I think there was another movie or TV series out at the time. And there was a character or, or something to do with that called B9. And they went, no, let's, let's just go with B4 instead. Yeah. Um, which, uh, yeah, I don't know if it completely works to be... Well... B4 doesn't work in the context of the film. No. Um, which is a shame because, you know, another Sung Android, it could have been fascinating to see. And as you said, his performance is creepy and a little bit uncomfortable. And it in this sort of time, 20 years on, there's obviously this big, big push for mental health. Um, and you see that sort of performance, and yeah, yeah, he, he's he's um emotionally underdeveloped, probably the yeah. way to describe it, and um, socially stunted in his development, which kind of makes sense because he's a basic, more basic version. But that's kind of what comes across. I, yeah. I, in ones I find myself kind of quite thinking that the performance is quite good for what he is, but at the same time, it kind of yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily. And- work as well these days either and don't forget before star trek brent spiner was a very very famous comedy actor he did a lot Mm. of comedy roles so i wonder if a lot of that was trying to make it you know put something of the comedy back into it but yeah i don't think it was a great moment for brent spiner 
anything else you want to touch on on that before we... I, I don't think so. I mean, it gives Geordie a little bit of something to do in the movie because, again, there are moments where it feels like, oh, it's Data and Geordie um, basically working on B4. Feels like that old dynamic they, when they used to work together engineering in the old TNG days. And I kind of maybe that's, again, feels like something that was cut from the movie that would have worked quite well. Yeah. The the only thing I would say for that sequences, uh, those sequences, is there are a number of nice effects where you see the two of them together. Yeah, yeah, it holds um, up. The, the moment where the camera looks at B4, goes up over the top of them, comes back down at data as he's talking, I'm thinking that was a really, really nice effect because that you can't tell a transition at all, particularly as Geordie's there walking around mm, them as well. Yeah, it's very good. And that, you know, that's one thing I'll take away from it. That was a really nice effect. The scenes themselves, yes, Data and Geordie talking, Data and Geordie interacting, always good to see. But you get that moment there where Data's pointing at the back of B4 going, what's this? I don't know what this is. At that point, that should have been warning bells, yeah. really. And going, it possibly was, because there was that bait and switch moment later on, we've actually not B4, it's actually Data, but yeah, I don't know. It doesn't land quite as well as you should have done. Okay, now I've got to say that the movie has got a great lineup of guest actors in this film. Mm. We started off, as you said, with Jim Robinson, yep. Alan Dale, in the opening scene. Later on, we get Dina, Ma- Dina Mayer? Yeah, Dina Mayer, yeah. As uh, Donatra. In this midpoint of the film, we've got Ron Perlman as, he's, as the Riemann Viceroy, which is a great character, mm. just we don't see enough of him. And it's a really early role from Tom Hardy as Shinzon. Yeah. What do you think of his Shinzon? I mean, it's weird because it's so unlike Tom. I like Tom Hardy. I think he's always good mm. in what he does. and um, But it's so different. I mean, physically he looks different to the Tom Hardy yeah. we all know, the one um, in, from Peaky Blinders to Bane in the Dark, that Dark Light Rises and, all, and Inception and so on. And generally he has... Like Inception's a great example of, of him where, when he's a, quite gruff and, and gets a lot of good with the action, but he's quite a lot of charisma too. And in this movie, there is... Oh, it's just... I find his performance just kind of gets worse as the film goes on. I don't think he is the... I almost felt like they picked him because he kind of looked with a shaven head a little bit like a young Picard more than mm. the actual. And I, I say I, I do like Tom Hyde's performance, but I don't think this is one of his best. And the way he designed in this kind of slightly glittery armor is like it's the most campus thing ever, campus <laughs> armor ever. And then like, when, he, when the first thing he, he appears and he lets under Troy, he's really creepy and. Oh, it's just, but I don't know. I just found that he he sounds more like a British teenager going, "No, I want to go my way. I, do, I don't care what you want to do. I want to do my way. I'm going to do my thing." And 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 it's kind of, he feels like a bratty teenager, and and in some ways maybe that kind of works because again his emotional development is stunted. He was basically a child who was basically mm. used. He's a child clone of Picard that was designed to be to replace Picard and put um, Romulan Spy in the Federation. Very much like Commodore O in Picard. And yeah. it's a great concept. And knowing what we know of the Romulans, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant idea. 
you know, they and I, I can see why he did it with Roe as well because the you know, the Commodore Starfleet intelligence is actually a Romulan. It's, it's a brilliant twist, and the idea of Picard could have been replaced as well is great. Knowing that what we know of Picard's dealing with the Romulans, but instead he gets stuck away in um in a in a prison on on, on basically. He's basically left to die in the lithium mines, and then he basically escapes, which is basically the exact same plot of his Bane in the Dark Knight Rises, if you notice. He basically is a child who gets stuck in a mine and then escapes and becomes a big bad bad guy. But anyway, that's that's that's, uh, that's like I, I observed this time. I've, I've watched Dark Knight Rises recently, and they go, kind of, oh, basically, this is the same plot. I know Dark Knight Rises came later, so maybe they took that from Nemesis. Who knows? Uh, but um, yeah, I just find he just there's a lot in this movie. Well, I can see what they're trying to do, and it doesn't work. And Shinzon's a prime example. There's a whole thing of the mirror to yourself. You've got Data and B4, what came before. And then you've got the exact same mirror with Shinzon and Picard. And it's, anyway, it's a little bit too false, but it's, there's so much yeah. about Shinzon going, you know, this is our destiny. You know, this is this is the, the inevitable conclusion of our, of our relationship, and, you know, I will triumph over you. And, and they're going for the Wrath of Khan style kind of revenge plot but we've never met him before so it's like what's the point of the character i like the concept of the character of that his clone and even and yeah they got the whole thing where he's dying so he needs picard's blood to survive because he's his development wasn't triggered so he's still much younger i just the whole thing just feels a little bit contrived it's a great concept but then the the contrivance of him dying and getting more and more um, haggard as the movie progresses as well just feels like it's trying to create some kind of tension drama that just isn't there in the movie mm. and then by the end when you get to when you get he says a line later on um, when um, he confronts him with the ship right at the end and then Data saves them and he says I'm glad we're together now our destiny is complete what destiny? there's yeah. no destiny here it's, but you've just met him a few hours ago, and now he's talking... I mean, and I get that from Shinzon's point of view. He must have found out a long time ago about his purpose. So he's been... I can get I get that he's consumed by his hatred of Picard because he should have replaced him and had Picard's destiny and legacy, and Picard has his grand legacy. They talk about all he's dealing with, with all the, the Borg and the other, other races as well. But... It just all doesn't. It all comes off really flat, and I just find him stomping around in this extremely kind of slightly sparkly, glittery black armor, looking like oh, I'm kind of becoming like, looking like a vampire. It just it just doesn't work for me. It just I, I find I find he starts off okay, and I, I like the scene. I think their second scene to go when Picard goes to have dinner with him, and he kind of learns what happened, and he tries to understand him. That kind of works, but then as the movie progresses and it becomes more of a pantomime villain, I think that's when the movie starts to fall apart for me, because yeah, it, it, it's Khan. It's like exactly the same as Khan in Into Darkness. You know, you don't have as much as Tom Hardy can be great actor and Benedict Cumberbatch is a great actor too. You know, there was something about um, Ricardo. What's his? Um, the actor played Khan originally, the original Khan. Ricardo Montalban. That's the one, yeah. About his performance is just mesmerising on screen. And it helps that you've had the space seed as well to, to set it up. 
I mean, I don't think I watched Spacey until many years after Rafa Khan. I'm sure, like most people, I watched Rafa Khan, and then I've since then seen Spacey and gone, oh, okay, I see where it's set up. But it works so beautifully. Whereas with the Khan we see in Into Darkness, which is probably my least favourite Star Trek movie, kind of for that reason, and the Shinzon we see here are two people out for revenge against the captain, but they don't have any of the charisma or the or the depth of story and impetus to be the kind of equivalent of the Khan of Afrika. I kind of know what you mean. I don't really want to go too too bad into Tom Hardy's performance, to be honest, because it seems at the time he was he wasn't really having the best time of it personally. Neither um, Tom Hardy apparently was. Um, he had a drug and alcohol addiction okay. from his mid-teens all the way up until early adulthood, and he was struggling with that at this point as well. As a teen, apparently, he was even arrested because he was caught joyriding in a stolen Mercedes. Right. His life had gone that much off the rails, um, and it was only because of a physical and mental breakdown shortly after the low performance of this movie um, his wife left him and he cleaned up his act. Okay. Um, so I, I think it's great, really, that um, he's put this film behind him. Mm. I don't think you're ever likely to see Tom Hardy at a Comic-Con talking about Star Trek Nemesis. But, yeah. um, you know, as as you said, we've seen him in The Dark Knight Rises. We've seen him in Piggy Blinders. Uh, I've had a look at some of the other films, you know, Layer Cake, Sucker Punch, Rock and Roller, Inception... Mm. Mad Max Fury Road, The Revenant, Dunkirk, yeah. and the two Venom films. Yeah, which which, know, which, which aren't great, but he's really good in those. He's really, really fun. I really enjoy his performance in those. I, I love the two Venom mm. films. I think they're really underrated, to be honest. Um, and before this, he'd done Black Hawk Down and Band of Brothers. Okay. And that was it. Both movies um, which have a bit, both movies or series that have a bit more prestige as well. I, I don't, yeah, I, I think maybe, uh, and you know, it, it, I'm glad he was able to kind of turn his life around and um, and go yeah, on to have a successful career as well. But it's uh, mm. he, he, he he is, and it could, could come down to the direction. Um, he's lost in this movie. It's a shame because he's a central villain and he's um and he's and he's he's lost. I think I think I I find it really hard to connect with him and. I don't know if it was because, as you mentioned, because of what was going on in his real life or his direction mm. of me. I mean, you've got to lay some of it at the director's hands, the way the way he was performed. But it's, uh, yeah, it just, he lacks the depth that you need from a villain like this. I'm going to run three names past you because according to Memory Alpha and IMDB, there were three other actors that were considered for this role before Tom Hardy was chosen. I'm going to run those names past you. Well, I'm going to get annoyed now. My- <laughs> what as as a possibility of what we could yeah. have had, um, Michael Shanks from Stargate SG One. Yeah, um, I can't see him as Shinzon. I quite liked him as Daniel in Stargate, but um, okay, I think Tom Hardy's better than that. I think, I think, but uh, I don't really, I can't see him as a villain to be honest. Okay, Jude Law. Would probably have been better. We saw, we saw him uh, as a kind of a sci-fi villain. We saw him more recently in Miss Marvel, and I don't think he was particularly strong in that. Again, some movies I really like. I think Jude Law when he gets the right movie, things like mm. Titan, Mister Ripley, um, 
and Closer, and there's a few movies, but I think he's really good. Um, I like him in the Sherlock Holmes films as well. Yeah, with, he's um, good. Robert Downey He's Jr. even good in The Holiday, actually. I quite like The Holiday. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> Christmas movie. Um, you wouldn't watch it outside of Christmas time, but in the movie, it's a very likeable cast with that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, maybe, maybe he might have had a little bit more depth, maybe. Okay. And the one last name on this list, James Masters. Says it all, really. Because uh, this is going to be coming off the. I mean, this is two thousand and two, so this is um, this is right at the end of Buffy. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, okay. Now I'm annoyed. <laughs> you really could have uh, seen James Masters playing Shinzo. Yeah, though maybe uh, a little bit. Okay. Again, we. I guess Jude Law at the time and Michael Shanks were a little bit younger, so like they obviously were going for for the age of the story. I'm going for a younger one, whereas James Masters would have been older, but the interpolacy. Mm. He, he his masters is one of those people that doesn't really age badly at all, does he? So I'm sure he could have played it. Oh, I know James Masters would have been great, but uh, there you go. I mean, how old is James Masters now? Is I think he's in his fifties, and he still looks like. I think he's older than that. Might be he might be older than that, but he's um. I mean, James Masters is uh, consultant. No, he's something uh, like thirty-seven when Buffy finished. It's like really. Yeah. He was that old, and he looked that damn good. I can't find him. Why can't I find him? I can't find him on um, INDB now. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I think he's older. They're older than he looks on screen. About halfway through the film, we've got a particularly disturbing scene involving Shinzen invading Troy's minds. Mm. I don't know about you, but other than a bit of a pointless shock factor. I don't think it really added much to the film. I know it led into later on where Troy then did the same back to the Viceroy. Yeah. But that's really all I could see that doing. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird having a sex scene in Star Trek as well. Mm. I mean, it sounds very kind of prudish, um, but it's just... It's the days before we had fuck in Star Trek. You know that happened later on. Yeah. But, uh, you know we might have had a little shit maybe if if we, if we were if we were lucky. But um, I don't know. I just it feels really gratuitous because it's obviously oh it's it's obviously Riker and Troy just got married and then before they go to the base or anything. This this is basically there. There's a the worst honeymoon ever, isn't it? This this movie, and um, it's their last mission on the ship. And um, yeah, I just kind of found it. I can kind of see what they're going for, but it feels really good. I feel like this is kind of the, the way it's directed as well. Just feels very, um, yeah. Gratuitous is probably the right word for this. It doesn't necessarily mm. need to. I think we've had uh, Troy's mind invaded before on the Next Generation, and maybe they were trying to do something a little bit different, and maybe a little bit more grown up, a bit more mature. But I just, I don't know. I think. I, it, it doesn't. It feels very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, I know what you mean. The other thing as well is Riker's a great character. We've loved Riker from when we first saw him in Encounter at Farpoint all the way up until now, um, where we see him in Picard. But the sex scene is a little bit weird. Yeah, <laughs> when you see him on top of Troy, yeah. and it's like, yes, we know that's going on. But yeah, it felt odd. Yeah, it was a little bit like he was. It was a bit too focused on them having sex. Then more the kind of the the mind attack thing. I don't know. 
I, I, again, I don't really know about the director, but I just the direction is weird on this movie. It, it again, if there are things like this, and I actually like like the June buggy scene, which I know I liked, and I know you liked it as well. But there are scenes yeah. that are kind of felt out of place and don't feel very Star Trek at all in this movie, and this is definitely one of them. Yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, I don't think it belonged. Um, and speaking of scenes that felt out of place, or at least character decisions that feel out of place, Picard ramming the Enterprise into the scimitar. That's that's I mean, a Janeway thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah, but I, I can't see Picard doing that. Well, I get. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I quite like that whole sequence because it is a it's a very desperate move, isn't it? When you've when you've got. Um, I mean, there are decisions in this movie with Picard that really feel weird, like the the boys' enthusiasm for racing the June buggy, and then the oh, let's just plug in B four and download all your memories. And actually, after the mind rape scene, Picard says, I need you to endure more assaults to Troy. He actually says that line. It's like, I need you to keep getting mind raped because it will give us a connection to what's happened with the bad guys. It's like, really? It's like, there's no... there's no. I mean, I know it's... Maybe because it's not physical, but the way it's, it's, it's kind of performed just feels like... Yeah, I know you were violated, but actually, we can use this to our advantage. It just... I, I don't know. That, that was probably the... the that's probably Picard's worst line I've ever had. I've heard him say. Um, yeah. It just felt like really this, 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 you know, this, this is this is not good. And um, again, I, I wonder if maybe it's the way it was directed. There's this thing with the script that's very different. I mean, maybe I again, I reckon, I sense the script and what we saw on screen are probably a little bit different here. And uh, again, it's yeah, there's it, a lot more focus on. Basically, it's like let's have sex, let's have action, let's have all this stuff in the movie. And, and that's not really what Star Trek is about. And I, I mean, arguably, Star Trek works best on TV anyway. I think with some of the rare exceptions like First Contact or Discovered Country, Rafa Carney, Voyage Home, and maybe even some Search of Spock, you know, those are the, the, the better ones, really. I, I'm always thinking that Star Trek works best on TV because when it's on film, it's got mm. to compete with things like Star Wars. It's got to have lots of action and 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 drama and uh, yeah, and that's what Lemus is trying to do. And and Stuart Baird doesn't get Star Trek; he didn't get Star Trek. So and it kind of shows he's trying to make a sci-fi action movie here with a big kind of villain twist, you know. And it's obviously never seen Rafa Khan because it's trying to do that. But again, I get the sense of the the, the script has much more nuanced to it than we ever saw on screen. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's it's a real shame because we're going back to the writer's, the, the writer's cut again. Um, but the other thing as well about this colliding the Enterprise into the scimitar, I mean, seeing what we do to the front of the ship, um, do we know that he's actually evacuated the forward section of the no. Enterprise at this point? It, it's a desperate move. I can kind of see that. No way. That, I mean, the scimitar is a basically. They say it, the first time they say it, it's a predator, and it's a big R ship. It's a nasty looking vessel. Um, it's mm. it's very different to what we see in the Roman and stuff. And I, I do miss the desert warships not being there. Even though I like the new warbirds that we do see in the movie, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a desperate move. But again, it feels very. There's no sense of what happens to all the crew. No, we're probably going to lose a hundred hundred people, but it's the right thing. I know it's trying to stop the scimitar from getting to Earth and all that kind of stuff that's going on with the, the the kind of odd radiation weapon thing that they have in this movie. But it just 
it feels like a desperate action, but it's it looks cool. I get I get the desperate the the the, uh, the need to do something really desperate to stop the stop shins on, but yeah, I think I think there's a massive body count on Picard's hands in this movie that the the movie completely glosses over. Yeah, and to be honest, it would have just all been fixed with one line because, you know, from the moment he says, or, you know, full impulse ahead or whatever the line is. Evacuate deck sections this immediately. And you see crew running to the bulkhead. The bulkhead's going down. Boom. It's like like that scene in um, You of Hell and Voyager when they... um, when they, they they run into the bulkheads before the before that whole section explodes, that's all you need. You need. It's two seconds, and you've got that, and and it shows them. But no, it's just basically. I'm surprised that bodies floating everywhere. It, it feels like that's what kind of the direction the movie they were going for. Yeah, and it takes about ten fifteen seconds for the crash to actually happen. Yeah. So it's a good sequence. You know, I like the time. sequence. I think it's a really cool sequence. Yeah. but it's just the mentality behind it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I've got to be honest, I've always struggled with the climax of Star Trek Nemesis. From the moment that they crash, I struggle with the pacing a little, and I kind of struggled with it again when I watched it uh, to do these notes. What do you think of it? Because I feel it's a bit anticlimactic. That's that's a word for it, absolutely. It's, it's so small. Mm. The whole thing. I mean, you've got, you've got basically... It looks great, you know. I love the kind of green nebula thing going on here as well, and the, and the Enterprise E. Who the Enterprise E is is, is my favourite looking ship anyway. It's a gorgeous looking ship. I love it fine for the green nebula and stuff. You you've got the bit when basically they're hunted, they're attacked by the the, uh, the scimitar, thrown out of warp, which is really cool. And so up to that point when they're racing back to to join the fleet to basically stop him from attacking Earth, that's all kind of that's all that's all fine. You you've uncovered I've uncovered his plan. And uh, but and yeah, Picard's Picard's escaped with data after being captured by Shinzon. There's there's some there's some good moments in there. It's got it's got a bit of pace onto it, and then you get this kind of fight, and it just feels very small. And you've got you've got Denatra and Suran as well. Um, Jude, um, this I can't pronounce his name. Um, Sicarello. Yeah, I apologize for butchering the name, but he's, he's a good actor. I've seen him in a few things. He's a good actor as well. Mm. I think he was in 24. And um, yeah, Suan and Donatra are basically. Well, I assume he actually he's vanishes from the film. I assume he's in the battle, but actually you don't see him at all. So they just drop that plot entirely with him and his kind of conflict with uh, conflict with Shinzon. But obviously, Donatra turns up. We've got two Romulan warbirds that just get massacred by, by the uh, Scimitar as well. And it's yeah, it's all it all builds this whole you know he needs Picard's blood to survive and then and I don't know it's it feels like a lesser Mutara Nebula scene from Rafa Khan I think that's what it is yeah. again it's like let's try and do Rafa Khan again the it's Nemesis is no is 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 kind of notorious like Star Trek Into Darkness of Green let's try Rafa Khan again because Rafa Khan was good and it doesn't work and. While the Green Nebula looks quite cool, the effects still hold up. The Enterprise E looks gorgeous. It's mm. just a lesser Mutara Nebula attack without any of that depth and the kind of the old year of lacks of tension of it. And um, yeah, it kind of, it, get, it builds this battle, then pauses for a conversation with a holographic Shinzon in the ready room. Then has Remon's attacking on the you know the Roman warbirds turn up and then they get destroyed. I do miss the Derek's class ships. I would love to have seen them on the big screen, but 
Um, yeah, me too. I assume the scimitar could fire when cloaked because that seemed like a kind of gloss. I'm sure it was firing at other ships when it was still in cloak, which was a big thing in an undiscovered country, but it seems to just happen here because it happens. I don't remember that. Mm. But yeah, it's it's weird. It's up and down. You've got a battle, then you've got a ready room conversation, then you've got fighting going on, then you've got Troy fighting back against the Viceroy, then you've got the Remans attacking. Um, you've got the cameo from Brian Singer, which probably does a hold up as well now. But yeah, as a big fan, he yeah. he replaced Worf on Tactical. You've got Worf and and uh, Riker fighting the Space Orgs on the uh, on after they attack the uh, sorry the Remans after they attack the Enterprise. And, Which felt like it was from Alien. Yeah, but I did that in First Contact so much better. Yeah, yeah. It just it feels like it was stuff we've seen before. It's Rafa Khan meets First Contact, but with none of the tension or the drama of those scenes. With some weird broke up conversations. Um, the best bit is probably when the bridge gets blasted, and um, is it Michael Owen as the helm officer Branson, who is basically giving. Have you noticed that throughout the movie he gives Picard dirty looks? Like, every time Picard says that, he goes. Really? We're doing this? We're doing this? <laughs> it's I, I love his performance as a movie because he basically, every, I, I, I did, and I was kind of, I just kind of sprung, every time, every time, every scene he was in, everything on the bridge, every time Picard says, we, we, we're going to Romulus now, we're doing this or we're doing that, he would go, you what? Okay, you're the captain, that's <laughs> yeah. fine. And then the poor guy gets blasted right. into space. And it was like, poor guy, because I really liked it. He, I mean, he doesn't have any character. That's what you get for questioning the captain. That's it, even with, you question with your eyes, you get blasted into space. And it was, uh, it, I, I felt sorry for him. But that, that was really cool. When when the, um, when that torpedo is blasted with the bridge and he gets sucked out and... Uh, it was it was great. That was probably my favourite moment. Um, and then you got the, cra- the crash into the scimitar and stuff. And of course, because all the destruct doesn't work. So um, yeah, it's um, and then even the deploying of the weapon. Oh, deploy the weapon now, and we can't escape, and we're going to die. That's basically Genesis of a car all over again. But just again, mm. without the drama, without the, uh, it's just it just it just lacks emotional depth. Yeah, exactly, and. It's a shame because this film could have been great, but I think I think the word I described for it, anticlimax, is probably the best word for yeah, it. Yeah, maybe even cheap because you mentioned this fleet. The fl- it's, it's like mm. like a next generation episode that didn't have enough budget. You see the fleet of the of the, like the six ships, but why why didn't they turn up? In the, why couldn't it be like okay, Romulan's attack? So they, the the scimitar attacks. Then they can't get in battered. Then the Romans come to save them. Then they get smashed. Then the Federation turns up with their fleet and the Scimitar starts ripping away through the Federation fleet and cripples them. And then in the last yeah. act, Picard rams the Scimitar. It's, it builds and it builds and it builds. But instead, you've got two ships that kind of do a little bit of damage. And then you've just got the Scimitar on the Enterprise. It's basically it's very, very small. It should have been... you know, Given that we've had battle of sector 001 and the opening of first contact i was expecting something like that when the first time i saw it because you mentioned that they're racing towards a regroup of a fleet i was expecting romulan ships probably on shins on side romulans and federation ships and a big battle in a nebula would have been really really cool and it's just really oddly paced and lots of lots of action they're not talking lots of action lots of talking and yeah it just yeah and you've got shins on prancing around like a pantomime villain um, it just, yeah, it doesn't work for me. I do feel that the movie stands up a little better 
because the events of Star Trek Picard. It does. It it's yeah. The closest. I mean, you, I, I I think I've asked before. You you haven't seen Twin Peaks, have you? No. No. There's a, the Twin Peaks movie Firewalker for me was actually was actually a prequel to Twin Peaks. Was released after Twin Peaks ended on a cliffhanger, and was kind of panned at the time. And now it's universally reappraised. And it's not brilliant, but it has some good stuff. And it and it was made better by the the, the new series that followed like 25 years later. And Nemesis reminds me of that in in the same way that Nemesis is a movie that was very anticlimactic and a little odd and made some weird decisions, but the impact. You, you, in the same way that, uh, as a Twin Peaks fan, I feel the influence of Firewalk with me on Twin Peaks season three. I feel the, the impact of Nemesis on Picard, and yeah. I think the two. Yeah, obviously the four, the kind of the, the the slow decline of the Roman Empire feeds nicely through. So I love that actually Picard acknowledged the the reboot movie and kind of made that canon. I think that works really well, and we talked about it in that in the episode on season one. But yeah, it's the death of data. The death of data hangs over that season, and it's it's a again Rafa Khan, Spock dying. It's the same thing over and over again. But it works here, except for the oh, we've got B four in the background. Yeah, but knowing what we know now about B four and the fact that Data's memories don't mm. work with him, and we then see him dismantled uh, in the Daystrom Institute. That bit of him singing Blue Skies right at the end yeah. of Nemesis now feels a little bittersweet. Very much so. Because you think, you know that's not going to work out. It's it's quite sad now that they've referred back to it. And as I mentioned earlier on, we see the start... Um, well, I think you said earlier on as well about uh, the uh, um, joining the Dominion War, the start of the end of the Romulan Empire, and we see eventually what that turns into by Discovery Season 4, mm. Season 3, sorry, yes. with Nivar. Um, and uh, that, I think, was a great little conclusion as well to what we'd seen going on with Unification, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. Mm. Because I think that needs a whole episode. Oh, absolutely. To discuss. Yes, I, I yeah. actually think when we do, we should we should do unifications one, two, and three as a, and then see how that pans out when we do that episode. Oh, you mean talk about a discovery? Yeah, let's go for that. Yeah. Ooh. 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 Okay yeah. then. <laughs> and we still we're still yet to do our second part of our crossover story as well, um, because we've got to do crossovers into next generation, yes. which I'm looking forward to doing as well. Have you got any remaining notes? Because I'm um, actually, I have one remaining note, and that one th- another thing I liked about this film was seeing Riker, uh, Captain Riker, at the end of the film, yes. leaving the Enterprise to finally take his own command. How long is it bloody taking you, Will? Well, it start was it wasn't it on his first ship in season two? So uh, yeah, that took a long, yeah. long time. Again, it felt so cheap that we didn't see the Titan. I'm assuming the Titan would have been in the next movie in the same way that the Sulu and the Excelsior would have been, was in Star Trek VI. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, again, really cheap. It makes this film very small. There was no big fleet battle at the end. We don't see the Titan. It kind of... It's a little bit 
big budget TV episode as opposed to a movie in, in that, that sense. Um, but um, it is great that Riker gets his ship. It's again, this it's one thing that makes it feel like a finale to the next generation. You know, in some ways, Riker finally letting go and moving on and becoming the captain of his own ship is was always his story. And uh, mm. and obviously, and then and then and really. Because they should have done it in season seven, rather than the whole weird wharf romance. Troy and Riker would always kind of destined to be back together again. I thought so. Uh, yeah, the fact that 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 with for Riker and Troy, yeah, there's a very sense of closure in this movie, and uh, it's the shame the other characters don't get it. I mean, there are moments like Geordie. I again, Geordie saluting kind of Data as he goes off to the uh, scimitar at the end. Knowing what happens next with Data's death is is a lovely little moment, but there's not. I wanted so much more of that. The same way that there's a scene with Crusher when she goes to Picard's ready room, and they talk about his past that she is very connected to as well through their own history. I wanted so much more of that. I want there was so much more to do that isn't there. And Worf just shoots things because they they oh they've got to have Worf in the movie. And uh, Worf's best line is probably his him getting slightly drunk and wandering out at the wedding which says it all really but um yeah it's um as a, as i say my, my thoughts maybe um it kind of works as a finale to the next generation era it's a little lackluster as a finale it's certainly no one discovered country it's more like had they finished the, the kirk movies with with uh final frontier <laughs> kind of that, that, that's what it kind of feels like but um it, there, there, was, there was stuff that works. There were moments with the crew. There's a moment, for example, when they're in the ready room just before the final battle with all the crew, um, and that felt so next generation to me. And there were moments where I thought this feels like a next generation movie or a next generation episode. And there were moments with the characters that worked, but they're just all too fleeting for me to kind of really make yeah. it a competitive good movie. Let's mention it as well because I did. I, I said I would. Um, Denise Crosby as Sela. If she had been the villain, not Shinzon, what a movie that could have been. Oh yeah, that would that would completely change it. Take out the whole thing about the cloning. You've got and just make it yeah. revenge of Sela. Yeah, I mean you would have to work hard to make it uh accessible to an audience that hadn't seen it. You need to do it in the same care and attention they did with Khan and Rafa Khan. But if you want to make Rafa Khan for the next generation, put, and you want to do it with the Romulans, put Sealer in it. That's it. There were, there were two. There were two things I could see. One, one. That's the kind of more obvious route. Let's have Sealer as the big bad because she is the mm. she is a, she's a next generation character, main ca- actor for a part of the show as well. Let's bring her yep. back for the final movie. Make her the villain. With the Romulans, who were the ultimate bad guys, you've got you've got a different movie here. It's 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 a great it's a kind of a great movie here. Um, the other option you could you could have replaced Anarcha with Sela and had Sela as um, the kind of ally of Shinzon and then betrays him at the end to actually save the crew of the Enterprise. Kind of works as well with the legacy of Tashi Yar saving the Enterprise from from uh, being totally destroyed. L- less impactful, but could have worked too. Uh, as, as much Redemption. yeah, as much as Dina Meyer was was fine, I thought she was fine as um, as Donatra. Uh, I kind of thought you know there were places there were places for Sela. I think actually Sela Sela would have worked much better than Shinzon. Um, but hey, there you go. 
Yeah, I'm I'm liking that. As much as I made you angry when I said James <laughs> Masters was up for the part, you're making me angry now with the fact that that would have been a much, much better movie, seeing Sela oh, well. taking her wrath against the crew. Oh, well, never mind. Oh. It's like we've got Picard. You've ruined it's, Nemesis. It's fine. We've got we've got Picard season three. We're getting the crew back together, and that's a great thing. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say because obviously we had Nemesis, which up until recently we thought was our final outing of the Next Generation crew, and we now know that it's not going mm. to be because we've got a ten-hour movie effectively um, with Picard season three coming up. Um, where we will get the entire Next Generation regular cast coming back. Yes, maybe we'll see And in that. fact... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be good? Um, and that's kind of also affecting our next couple of episodes, isn't it, Baz? Yes, well, there were some kind of big surprises in the uh, latest trailer as of going out, where we were calling this um, a few weeks before we this episode was going out, and... Uh, as of then, the last trailer, we feel we've got a couple of returning faces, but we thought oh, it would be a great opportunity to talk about them before Picard season three. Yeah, exactly, because right in the closing moments of that trailer, Daniel Davis reappears on our screen as Moriarty. Come. Who would have predicted him coming back? If I had listed 30 characters that could have returned in Picard season three from the next generation, he would not have been on there. No, exactly. Doesn't mean I'm over the moon to see it. I, I'm really, really intrigued. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm really intrigued. What is that going to be like? I don't, I don't know. Uh, a slightly sentient holographic villain is going to be because of the, where, I don't even. Where, it doesn't even seem to totally fit with with what we see of Picard season three at the moment or any of Picard. So uh, yeah, so um, I guess that's giving us the opportunity to revisit the two Moriarty episodes in our next episode. The only thing I can say um, at the moment is maybe he's got the technology of the Voyager, uh, of the EMH's mobile emitter. Ooh, I like that. Or he's somehow managed to figure out what happens with Vic Fontaine as well, because I know we've seen Vic Fontaine outside of the yeah. Suites a couple of times. And obviously all of these have happened after we've seen Moriarty yeah. in the next generation or it's going to be a two second hallucinating nightmare and that's it and, and that's it he's going to have one like two second scene but hey it's an excuse to revisit yeah. the episodes yeah and in the very last seconds of that trailer we see Brent Spiner yes yet again but at that point I was thinking okay which member of the Sung family are you this time and then you see Geordie saying law yeah oh I'm so excited for that I am um, because oh. it, it's great and I'm hoping because you didn't get enough in this film I'm hoping to see some of Geordie's kind of sense of closure over data because they have such a close relationship and we you never saw any of that um I, I, I love the how Picard's loss of data was treated in Picard season one I want to see some mm. of that but the conflict with, with law as well who we haven't seen since Descent as well in the beginning of season seven yeah, yeah I'm uh I'm really intrigued for that too yeah, exactly. I want to know um, if they go into what happened with law during all of the uh, since being illegal or you mm. know since being banned. What was law doing in all that time? Yeah. They've got to go into that. Surely. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, so those are going to be our next two episodes. We'll be having some special guests for these uh, next couple of episodes as well. We're going to be joined for our chat with uh, chat about Professor Moriarty with Rob Turnbull. 
who I believe you know from your podcast. I do. I'm, I've known Rob since going back to my digital fix days. But yeah, uh, Rob, he was recently on my uh, uh, One Rules and More Lord of Things podcast. He's done some Tyrus crew in the past as well. Yeah, so he's a he's a, he's a big, big next generation fan. So I've been wanting to get him on the uh, Beyond Far Point for a while. Yeah, I've chatted to him on uh, Rarely Going recently, where we got to talk about the Lower Decks episode Crisis Point Two. Uh, so looking forward to that one and after that we're going to be joined by Hugh McStay for our chat about law and I know he's been listening to the podcast as well as he told me on um, the episode of Podcast 616 I guessed it on recently excellent yeah good to get him on too I know he's a big Star Trek fan as well so uh, yeah it'd be uh, good to uh, get them both on to talk about yeah so the next one we'll be talking about Moriarty's episodes and then we'll be going to law and his episodes um one after that, basically, hopefully, out just before Picard season three starts. If there's nothing else that you want to talk about regarding this episode, I think we can. I think so. Points. I think it's not a terrible movie, but as we said, it um, it goes off the deep end. It's, it's a shame, but we've got Picard season three to kind of redeem the next generation era, haven't we? Where does it stand in your list of thirteen movies? Ooh, it's not as bad as Into Darkness and Final Frontier, but it's probably next after that. So let's say it's number 11, 11. then. Yeah, let's go for that. (laughs) I'm going to put it at 12, uh, because I actually quite like Into Darkness. (laughs) I am the one. So uh, mine's down there at number 12. So it's... It's one of those things, though. It's still Star Trek, yes, so yeah. I'll if it's on, I won't turn it off. But yeah. I wouldn't probably choose to watch. No, it. but I, I I actually enjoyed watching it again. I enjoyed most of it, I should say. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's always good to watch and to watch the crew as well. Yeah, it's always good. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you as ever, Baz, for joining me today. Where can the listeners get a hold of you? So you can find me. Well, currently on Twitter. Who knows what's happening with Twitter these days? But I'm currently on Twitter at Baz Greenland. Um, I, you can also find me over that we made this podcast network where I do the TARDIS crew with Dot Two podcast with my son Ben, and you're going to come on next year, aren't you, to talk uh, yes. one of Rossi Davies series from there? And One Rules Them All, a Lord of Rings podcast. We've recently discussed um, Rings of Power season one and um, a Dream Game Reform, which is my Battle Five podcast I co host with Luke Winch. But yeah, at the moment I'm still on Twitter, so you can find me on there where I post all my podcasts. And all the writing, all the books I'm working on too. Thank you. I can be found on Twitter at NCC underscore 17 Formula 1 if Twitter still remains a thing going forward. And if you like your 80s 8-bit retro games, you can also follow at Specky World Cup. I will also be starting a new podcast about the TV series Farscape very soon uh, with Nick Chandler. That's going to be called Uncharted Territories. And in the meantime, I've been appearing on episodes of Rarely Go In, an animated Star Trek podcast, and Podcast 616, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. And by the time this episode is aired, I should have also been a guest on the We Are Starfleet podcast, talking about the Star Trek Prodigy episode Masquerade, which is yet to air at point of recording. We can be found on the Facebook group, The Nexus, along with all other Holosuite Media podcasts. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next month for our chat about Professor Moriarty. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Let's see what's out there. Engage.